Hey guys, happy Wednesday and welcome to season two of the Drive Through Moms podcast. I'm your host, Lynn Nitcher. I've always had a huge heart for moms and their lifelong job of raising children, their struggles, joys, and experiences that are so often 100% different from my own. Each week we get to hear the story of an ordinary mom serving her family, community, and the Lord in amazing ways. Seeing the gifts and talents of others and watching how God has worked in their life inspires me daily. We are all in this motherhood game together, and I believe we can benefit immensely from listening and encouraging each other through what God has done in our own lives. What a privilege it is to share these amazing women with you. I'm so glad you're here. Here we go. Happy Wednesday and welcome to the Drive Through Moms podcast. I'm your host, Lynn Nitcher. Today we have a very special guest on that I'm super excited about. We have Dr. Christina Crenshaw. Um, Dr. Crenshaw is an English department lecturer at Baylor. She's an advisory member of the Refuge Waco Ministries, a roundtable member with the Heart of Texas Human Trafficking Coalition. Um, a cultural engagement leadership fellow at Dallas Theo and has recently um, found herself in the middle of some attention due to some tweets and some hot topics uh, lately through Baylor and some things going on at the school where she has been a part of. Um, But we're going to dive into a whole lot of that today. And I just want to say thank you, Dr. Crenshaw, for being on. Yeah. Thank you, Lynn, for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited. So before we get into all the the uproar and kind of what's happened in your life the last few months, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your background and your family and maybe your current stages as to it relates to your family? Sure. Yeah. So um, I am married 17 years. Um, I'm a mom of two beautiful boys. They're both miracles. Um, you know, we can talk later about my fertility journey, but that is definitely related to motherhood and has shaped, you know, who I am and, and the importance of being a mom. But uh, my oldest one is nine and my younger one is seven. And um, in addition to being a wife and a mom, I'm also, um, you know, kind of professor, researcher, writer, and human trafficking fighter. That's kind of my little bio speech. Um, I earned my PhD at Baylor University. Then we moved to California, and I was an assistant professor out at California Baptist University. Um, but then when our family made the the transition to come back to Waco, I started teaching at Baylor as a lecturer. So doing the working mom and the mom thing. Which, what led you to decide to be a professor? Like both, I come from an education background. Both of my parents were teachers. I went the whole education route, um, got my degree in French of all things. Um, and I'm certified to teach high school French, but got to the end of it and went, yeah, that is not for me. I just don't think I can I don't want to do that. But so how did you decide? I think I'll be a professor. Yeah. You know, I think it happened pretty organically. Similarly to you, I come from a long line of educators. My mom was a high school English teacher, master's degree in English. Um, Her older brother is a professor at a university down in Austin. And her younger brother was actually just retired this past year, but was the dean of humanities at a university up in Fort Worth. So a real academic family. Um, I did, you know, I did went to undergrad. I I got my master's degree. Um, undergrad English, master's in education, and was teaching high school English, loved it, have always, you know, I told my husband just last night, I think what I love most about teaching is the discipleship, you know, like there are certain subjects I for sure could not teach organic chemistry, you know, computer sciences could not do it. (laughs) But, you know, really, I've taught English department, I've taught school of education, I have taught human trafficking classes, I've taught leadership classes, because for me, it really is discipleship, like I will figure out the content, like just give me a group of students to love on and disciple. And that's what I'm there for. So um, ended up earning my PhD at um, Baylor, my husband earned his MBA. And when he finished, I think there was just that fire in me to go back to school, you know, watching him finish. So I was late 20s when I decided I was vacillating between the English and education PhD programs. But what I liked about the education program is that you can choose a cognate kind of like a minor. And I chose English. So I got the best of both worlds, you know, got to study like the social theory, but then also got to, you know, um, enjoy the literary aspect of it as well well. So, and for somebody that obviously, you know, words are a big deal to you and, and 
communication and understanding the heart behind a conversation and why as a parent with kiddos, um, especially at the college level, um, it's, I love the discipleship component of that because it's relationship driven. It's, I'm not just here to teach you X, Y, Z. Um, I care about you as a person, um, and being able to share and mentor not only your, your spiritual beliefs, but, um, just to be a source of a mentor, um, in the classroom, I think is really great. And one thing that parents like to see is somebody that's in the classroom that not only is there to collect a paycheck and be a teacher, but to, um, build a relationship with those kids, because those are the kind of teachers that you remember, um, years later, you know, you remember the teachers that took time out to spend time with you to get to know you a little better, um, and mentor you. So I love that discipleship aspect of, um, being a teacher. It's yeah. funny. It's funny because my um, my best friend uh, shared you with uh, with me from Instagram several months ago before all of this hubbub started, and um, she said, "Hey, do you follow Dr. Christina Crenshaw?" And I was like, "No, I don't. You know, I don't know who she is." And he said, "She said, um, she says, oh, you need a follower. She's a Baylor professor, and I have my youngest is a Baylor, and I thought that was hilarious because she's like a diehard Aggie." So I was like, "How in the how in the world did you find her?" But so she shared me with you, and I loved um, following you. And I can't imagine that just the spotlight that you've been in the last few months. You know, and I'll let you get into your story a little bit about. I know this last year just from following you on social media, you kind of stepped back from, from the university some to, um, I don't know whether it was to be with your boys or you were also in school. Um, was that, yeah. is that why you yeah. stepped back from Baylor? Okay. Yeah. I mean, all of the above really Lynn. So, um, yeah, and we can kind of get into, you know, what happened. Um, yeah. I, you know, like, it's so funny cause I've, I've shared this story so many times that I'm still like, it's pretty, un- it's an unbelievable story, but yeah, um, I just was yes. wondering like how, so I know before we get to that, just like the, your decision to initially step away from Baylor and then, you know, juxtapose that to your experience of maybe thinking, well, this is going to be a little less stressful. I'll be home with my boys and can go to school and focus mm-hmm. on that. And yet that's <laughs> not exactly what happened. So no. how no. So how has that been? Yeah. The irony. Um, yeah. So I decided, so I taught, I have taught essentially full time since I've been back in Waco for about five years, you know, stepped off the tenure track, came back to Waco really for my husband's career, but because we wanted to be near friends and family, we, we love this town. So um, that was what brought us back. And I knew coming back that it was, you know, a really professional suicide. If you're, if I'm honest, I, to this day, have not met anybody who has stepped off a tenure track, um, become a lecturer and um, gone back to tenure track. It just doesn't work that way. So I made that, I had that resolve in my heart that I was already choosing motherhood above my career. Now I want to say, Lynn, for, you know, all the working moms out there and for any other faculty members who might be listening, it's not that this isn't possible. Like I meet mothers all the time who are, who are knocking it out of the park, working full time and doing motherhood or on a tenure track and doing motherhood. I think for our family, it just wasn't feasible because my husband and I were both running very hard in our careers and something had to give. And right. we just came to a place where we were like, it's either going to be our marriage or it's going to be our career. And that was just an easy sacrifice for me to just say like, what I love about academia, again, is the research, the writing, the discipleship, and I can do that as a lecturer. So I give that context to say, like, for five years, I've been teaching, you know, contract to contract as a full-time lecturer, and it's just been pretty darn perfect. Um, I have the summers off to be home with my kids. I don't have the pressure of research. I have done research. I've done a lot of human trafficking research and publishing and conferences and all the things that tenure track faculty would do, serving on different boards around Baylor, really giving myself to, to academia, but also having the freedom to say no in a way that I don't know that I would if I were tenure. So when COVID hit, you know, I'm teaching four classes, 80 students. We all are going through our own different crises. Um, my poor students go on spring break like the rest of us and they don't get to come back. You know, they've mm-hmm. left their stuff in the dorms. Like, I don't know if your youngest experienced that. If oh, yeah. Freshman. He's he's yeah. a junior. He's a junior. So now he didn't have things in the dorms. But yeah, it is. 
it has been a nightmare for sure. Yes, it was a nightmare for everyone, you know, so, you know, grace and compassion to everyone who looked through that. But, you know, for me, what ended up happening is, you know, my two kids get sent home and they're six and seven at this point. My husband oversees 27 home health care agencies throughout the United States. So his job like tripled in the amount of work he had to do, tracking down in 95 masks and updating his caregivers on all of the COVID. I mean, it just was a nightmare. So it, I joke with people, but it's really not a joke. I kind of had PTSD surviving that season, you know, really doing justice to my 80 students online who were scattered to all ends of the earth. I mean, really and truly had international students even in my classes and then trying to steward my own boys' education. Um, um, and then trying to maintain a home with a husband who just could not be available. He really didn't experience a lockdown. He would still go into the office because he just had to work. He was an essential worker. Right. So I kind of set up that as like, you know, and I knew these changes were coming down the pipeline with mandatory masks and mandatory testing and all of the different changes that K through 12 and higher education have had to do to accommodate for the pandemic. So I said, I am just going to teach one class in the fall and see how that goes and see if I like it. Um, you know, and it just was different, Lynn. Like it wasn't bad. I just, I couldn't go to coffee with my students like I normally would. I couldn't get to know them because they're all in mass. And I think the students would tell you it was the same experience for them across the board. You know, they, some of them are doing hybrids, some of them in line, their education was interrupted. So I just, that's when I said to my husband, I, my kids keep getting sent home, you know, like somebody in their class would get COVID test positive, and then they would come home for two weeks. And I was like, this is not really sustainable. I I'm going to take the entire spring off. In fact, I'm going to take the spring off from teaching. I'm only going to fulfill my volunteer commitments because it, you know, I'd already volunteered to teach a human trafficking course for no compensation. And it wasn't fair to those students to then negate that commitment. Right. And, you know, then I said, I'm, in, I'm overseeing a human trafficking honors thesis and I'm, I'm going to, you know, get that kid over the May finish line. So I said, I'm going to keep those commitments. But I'm just going to be home. I'm going to take a couple of seminary classes because I've been doing that anyway. You know, for the past couple of years, I'll take a class here and there. I don't really need any more degrees. I just really love theology. <laughs> I was going to say kudos to you because <laughs> just going back to school is not appealing whatsoever to me. <laughs> yeah. I know my husband's like, can you please choose a less expensive hobby? Um, right. Seminary is not cheap. You know, it's, gosh. Yeah. It's not uh, cheap. It's not necessary. And I don't know that there's a big return on investment here, but um, right. just, you know, I'll... Maybe not this side of heaven, the, but for sure. Say, when I get to heaven, there, you know, will maybe be crowns of glory there. So right. um, that to say, yeah, just really had stepped away from Baylor. Still, I guess, technically on faculty, but not being compensated um, for my efforts, just doing that for, for free, uh, which then made when I made a totally reasonable, you know, biblically, biologically rooted comment on Twitter was a blindsided by the response. And we can go into that story. Yes, no, for sure. Because um, it's, I think the the part of this that on my side is interesting is for people that know me, and I think I kind of mentioned this to you before, but for people that know me in my inner circle will probably be shocked that I'm even having a conversation about something that is politically controversial in nature um, because I'm a huge avoider of the news. Um, I'm not a big fan of controversy and confrontation. My parents, you know, I grew up with my parents were both high school teachers. My mom was a history teacher. My dad was a preacher. Um, current events were very big in my home, still are. My brothers and my husband are very um, politically minded. And, and the news in general has just an uncomfortable thing for me because of probably the confrontation controversy level, um, not necessarily the biblical topic of it, but the, uh, so when I saw this, like I hurt for you, right. I, and I'm like, I don't even know you. And I hurt for you <laughs> for all the things that were going on. But I guess that's just my disclaimer to say, you know, it, forgive me for my ignorance of all things, news and politics. Um, but as a mom, I'm all about moms and I'm all about raising our kids. Um, you know, obviously I've done it. My youngest is 21 and my oldest is going to be 29 this summer, which is scary to say that I've got an almost 30 year old. <laughs> um, but as moms, you know, we know how important it is to not only know the truth for ourselves and be able to stand on the truth from God's perspective and be able to share our beliefs with our kids. Um, 
Yeah, I think I love the New Living Translation of that verse uh, best from Deuteronomy that talks about, um, you know, how you walk along the side of the road um, and teaching your kids things when they go to bed and when they lie down. And the version says, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children and goes on to talk about the rest. But I think all of that to say, you know, being aware of what God's word has to say on a regular basis and teaching it to your kids is so important because you're teaching them the truth of what he says and how to filter that through that, through the world's perspective um, and have a biblical perspective of whatever we come up against. But so your situation in particular, you made this comment. So if you want to explain a little bit about kind of the situation and what happened with the tweet that you made and the kind of firestorm you found yourself in the middle of. Yeah, yeah. So um, not everybody knows who Dan Darling is. It depends on, you know, kind of who I'm talking to. But essentially, he is a Baptist leader. He um, you know, has worked for the ERLC, the Ethics Religious Liberty Coalition. And now he works for a Christian, basically like free speech um, organization, which is what makes part of the story so ironic. Um, so he had tweeted and we've, you know, interact some on Twitter before, but I can't say that we actually know each other, just socially know each other. But he had, uh, he had tweeted that he was really concerned about the expansion of title nine, um, to include, uh, transgender identity people. And what is concerning that he was expressing is that that then allows biological males to, um, who identifies biological females to occupy those spaces. And so that can be in educational settings, scholarships, clubs, organizations that could be within sports. Um, now under the proposed Equality Act, which has passed, um, House and it is currently being debated in Senate. If the Equality Act passes, what that could potentially mean for religious organizations is that they no longer have religious protection either. So to bring it home for listeners, an example I've given, if the church camp down the street says, you know, hey, sorry, we don't let males uh, in female cabins, even if they do identify as female, that could potentially be a lawsuit or be considered illegal under the Equality Act. So I think that there's a lot of reason to be concerned about these new executive orders that um, have to do with gender that, um, you know, look particularly at how we define gender based on someone's identity and not necessarily biology. Right. And that, that is essentially what I was expressing when I replied to Dan and said, like, hey, I am concerned, too. You know, don't the rest of us who don't struggle with gender dysphoria have a voice in this? And I replied to that. And I think I just like quite literally copy and pasted and retweeted you know, that, like, you know, maybe a few semantic differences. Um, and a, a good solid week goes by and people either like it or they ignore it or who even knows. Um, but there is no immediate reaction because even though like at best it's maybe snarky, although within the context of Twitter, it's not, you know, because every time I'm like, oh, it was a little snarky, people who are Twitter, you know, users are like, not at all. So I think it just right, depends right. on like context, you know, like it's not words that I would ever use to a person or if I were asked to speak, because, you know, your audience is everything, context and audience are everything. So it was like an exchange between two people who were like-minded. Um, but then what ends up happening, and to this day, I don't know, and I may never know, um, but someone alerts the Baylor LGBTQ community. Right. And so from there, it ends up just blowing up because, you know, I imagine they have connections to LGBTQ groups at other universities or, you know, even larger organizations. And so for me, I have tried really hard to like to, to not make this a debate or a fight or some sort of a you know, quarrel between me and the LGTB community, because that was never my intention. Like they, you know, my concern was for children and protected female spaces. And if I'm really honest, I am not worried about the less than 1% who identify as transgender. I am actually more concerned about the gender fluidity that this opens for people who are predators. You know, so right. um, this wasn't a concern of mine, you know, again, because you 
talked about how you don't usually do political podcasts. For me, this isn't political so much as it is theological or even right. biological. Um, but I didn't intend for this to be political. And I, you know, certainly like different people have said most vast majority of people have reached out are supportive. Like within Baylor community, outside of Baylor community, the few who have reached out, there have been some who have been downright mean and hostile. And that was, you know, the initial onslaught was overwhelming. I mean, just, I don't know that anything else has affected my mental health like this incident, other than when I walked through infertility for four years, it was really that hurtful. Um, still very tender to talk about. Actually. Well, sure. I'm sure because you were you know, called some names by the paper, this article that came out in the school paper, which um, they ended up coming back and changing, right? At least the paper did, maybe not the university in terms of um, calling you transphobic. And the school came back out or the paper came back out and changed and apologized or how did that play out? Yeah. So again, it's one of those things like I may never really know what happened behind the curtain or behind the scenes, but um so the 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 Baylor Lariat, which is a school paper, ends up writing a very libeling article. There's just no other word, you know, slanderous libeling article. Um, the title of it is essentially Dr. Crenshaw tweets transphobic message. So they label me transphobic and the entire article, they should have at least considered it an op-ed because it's not news. I mean, there's just like, what's newsworthy about a tweet? Right. Um, but the whole article goes on to make the case and it's very clear. You can see the agenda you know, anybody can see it, that if I would say these words, that I am not a safe person and the transgender and LGTB community are not safe in my presence and that I need to be fired. Right. Which at this point, you're not even... Right. You weren't even being paid from the school, right? <laughs> right. So that's kind of a stupid comment. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that students really know that. And I don't know that they really care. You know what I mean? Because they're, again, right, like this right. is part of a larger agenda. Like they sure. have an agenda. So this was fodder for their fire. I don't think they really cared what my status was um, right, right. at the time. But, you know, I think even if this had been a state school, if this had been, you know, Texas A&M or U- University of Texas, like this is all kinds of wrong to try to take down a faculty member because she has dissenting views that as you, you know, like you don't, you don't get, that's not civil discourse. That's not freedom of speech or freedom of, you know, particularly within the Baylor context, religious expression. So even at a state school, this kind of behavior would be deeply concerning. But the fact that I express Judeo-Christian Orthodox traditional views at a Judeo-Christian Orthodox university, I think is what makes this even more egregious. This right. is what made it go viral because you were, you're essentially doxing. You are, um, you know, kind of again, slandering and bullying a faculty member for holding views that your very own university espouses. Right. So how, you know, so it's just like the contradiction again, the, the irony there. So um, yes, again, I don't know behind the scenes how much pressure there was from administration or if they did this on their own accord, but in the 14 years I have been connected to Baylor, I've, I've one, never seen the Baylor paper write such a hurtful, harmful article on anybody, particularly a faculty member. But two, I have never seen them apologize for any of their rhetoric. Um, so it's kind of a both and like they've never really needed to apologize for something this egregious and slanderous. But on the other hand, you know, like, I do want to give credit where credit is due. And they did come out. They did. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. What's funny is that, you know, I'd seen a lot of this already on Instagram um, because of following you and your story. And, um, and I'm also part of the, like I said, I'm part on, I do have Facebook. I'm not really on very much because it's just annoying. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm a part of a couple of Baylor groups for parent groups and stuff. And it was funny because maybe three weeks ago, which at this point it's been, you know, Old several news. weeks, yeah. old news, right? It's already yeah. been all over. Um, it finally hit this, the parents group. And I would say from my perspective as a parent uh, of a Baylor student, um, I have seen, which I think agrees with what you've said about what uh, you've seen on Instagram and the support you've had personally, that the parents were very much backing you and very much, um, you know, uh, disheartened by the negative press within a school paper Um to not only say what they think, but like you said, wasn't necessarily an op-ed piece, but um, to slander a university staff 
but not only that, within a, a, a school that espouses biblical Baptist heritage views. So um, it was good to see that a lot of the parents that were just now kind of coming around <laughs> to seeing it, that, that the support was definitely there. I mean, from your side, what has it been like really dealing with the conflict? I mean, it's obviously, like you said, had to have affected you emotionally and spiritually. I know you've had tons of um, social media it has to have been crazy from the the DMs and messaging and texting and whatever, but what has that been like just dealing with the conflict yourself? Yeah. So um, yeah, to kind of finish like the, you know, the, the whole situation, this is a pretty big deal. You know, like I'm still kind of reconciling this part, but the, the university provost who was under the president ended up stepping in. Like she needed to, I think the outrage from students and then the backlash from other students who were mad at the ones slandering me. Um, and then parents, you know, so like a lot of heavy hitters, like some names I can't even publicly say, but I had huge administration, you know, board of regents reach out. I had former people who are part of Trump's cabinet reach out, you know, so like I just had wild support behind the scenes. And I imagine if even half the people who reached out to me pressured Baylor, they felt like we have to really respond. So they never actually addressed the sexual ethics and the the sexual, the sexuality part of it, which is fine. Again, that's not my fight. But they did address, she sent out the provost a statement on um, free speech for faculty and that you don't have the right as a student to, to try to take anybody down, but particularly faculty for their um, free speech. And it was a call to civil discourse. You know, my husband, who's in the business world, he's like, well, they never really apologize, which is kind of true if we're honest. Right. I'm like, babe, this is the way academics apologize, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, like, this is as good as it's going to get. Right. So, take what you can get. Yeah. So I do at least feel like there was technical support there. Um, so that and I was, is. And I will say, I was just going to say, I will say that um, we emailed, I mean, my husband and I both emailed the office of the president. And I know just from, um, the Facebook group alone, the number of parents, everybody was like, email. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you're, you're paying, right. You're paying a lot of money for your kids to be at a school and, and bar none. We have loved the experience that we've had. I mean, I went to Texas tech. So did my husband, my, one of my other daughters did, we had another kid that went to a private, uh, Christian school in Arkansas. So this um, environment we knew was going to be a special environment and we knew mm-hmm. we had him there for a lot of reasons, but we also knew it was blooming expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're as a parent, um, I'm always going to be that one. That's like, I have a right to at least express my opinion in an email because mainly a, I'm paying for it and B it's wrong. And so just, yeah. So just know there was lots of chatter on Facebook about oh. just like, Hey, just be sure and let them know how you feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, I may never know, but just even the ones who have told me like friends in Waco, because that's the thing. I mean, you know, Lynn, from coming to Waco, it's a pretty small town, you know, like mm-hmm. even on my street of 10 houses, eight of them are Baylor graduates, eight of these households, you know, that's, that's on my street of 10. And there's nothing special about my street. It's just Waco, Texas. So I have felt, you know, like if I were to try to quantify it, it is at least an 85 to 90% support. And then the few who have not supported me have been mostly students in their twenties, like very few, I guess, you know, what we would consider like adults, reasonable people have, have, you know, publicly tried to, use words to harm me, you know, like they, they've been supportive. Um, so but you had asked how that affected me. I ended up having to hire a former student, Lynn, to put into an Excel spreadsheet, all the communication that I got in February, because this happened very, very end of January. So in February and March, and uh, it was just beginning of April that, you know, I, I paid her and, and she handed over the list, but I had her put into an Excel spreadsheet and there were 566 messages and emails. And I just told her to triage, like if, you know, Fox news made it up there at the top kind of thing, you know, sure. But, um, sure. Like but how do you respond in the middle how, of that? Yeah. How do you, and there are still some, and there, there are some, I will probably never be able to respond to. And some I need to not respond to. I mean, there are a lot of really, you know, hurtful ones, you know, probably out of that 566 that, you know, close to a hundred of them 
just don't need a response. Like you're, they're just petty students, whatever. Um, yeah. So that was overwhelming. Then it became a full-time job managing this PR nightmare. The kinds of messages that I got, even the ones, so some of them were deeply hurtful. You know, if I, you know, one of like the ones I got, some of them are inappropriate and I can't share, but like one student and again, Grace, they're 20. What do they know? But, you know, said to me, um, I hope your kids grow up to be transgender and hate you. You know, so when you get, you can, your, your soul can only take so many of those messages before you're just like, I, for the sake of my mental health need to pause. And I think Lynn, because this is a faith based podcast, like this is a great place to pause and say, I realize that there is a warfare dynamic beyond just me. Like what I walked into was a cultural moment that the uh, the university needed to have a reckoning with, apparently, because this is an eight-year battle on campus. Unbeknownst to me, I've just learned this after what happened to me. But I think this was a place where the Lord was like, I'm going to use this to bring good, because that's what he does. You know, Romans right, 8, 28, right. the Lord works out good for those who love him. And I I love him. I believe Baylor loves the Lord, you know, Baylor as an institution. Um, parents love it. Students love it. Like, we, there are a lot of reasons that we love Baylor for, for, for God glorifying reasons, like not just the football, not just the basketball national championship. Like those are all great bonuses, you know, but you can love that at a state school that the thing that is unique about Baylor is that it really does profess to work unto the glory of God. And, and that's why a lot of students choose Baylor. So um, I think that the Lord was like, I am going to use this moment. It's, you know, it's, it's going to hurt like all pruning processes do. It hurt me. I'm sure it hurt the president's office to receive all of these emails. Like they didn't need another PR nightmare. I mean, they've they've gone through a lot and I've tried to be very sensitive to that because I don't have a vendetta against Baylor. I love Baylor. I mean, I I feel like I, I sort of say, you know, tongue in cheek, but there's truth to it that she helped raise me. You know, I earned my PhD there. I've taught there. My husband earned his MBA. He still speaks in the business school. Like we really do love this university too. And we believe in her and I want her to be an extension of the church. So I am not out to expose her or throw her under the bus. You know, I think there is a real place of of spiritual reckoning that is happening on campus. And this just sort of forced Baylor's hand, but I think in a good way. Oh, for sure. In fact, I just in prepping for this, um, you know, the Lord brought a lot of scripture to mind to me about kind of your situation and what's gone on. And, um, you know, there's a scripture in Isaiah that talks about, behold, I'm doing a new thing. I'll make uh, ways in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. You know, do you perceive it? And sometimes those things that happen that are going on around us that he's working in the middle of that may be like this wilderness and we don't really see what he's doing. And he's like, do you see, you know, that this is an opportunity, not only for the school, like you said, to make their own decisions on how they're going to stand and what they're going to say and do, but for you as well, in terms of like, you know, maybe a crossroads in your own um, uh, career with your kids and, and maybe what happens next. But the conflict of it all, I think that, you know, from an outsider's perspective, I just commend you on how I feel like, you know, how I've approached it or seen you approach it, um, that I think you've displayed a lot of grace and love. You've been transparent in terms of how you've reacted to it. Um, I don't think there's been, um, you know, obviously there's been hurt, but I don't think you've, you've, uh, been ugly about or talking ugly about other people that have, that have hurt you. But I think a couple of things in, you know, clearly I think that comes from your, your faith as a believer to know, you know, scripture talks about living peaceable at all with all men and to not be angry or be angry and don't sin about it. And, and to not let the sun go down on your anger because that conflict can stir up all of that. Right. And right. Can stir yes. up those feelings, mm-hmm. regardless of just as a human. Um, and as a mom, you know, your protective mode's got to go on, um, you know, not only protecting yourself, but like, Hey, don't attack me. Cause in some ways that's going to attack my family and my kids and whatever. But so what in the middle of all of this, conflict. I mean, how do you think it's affected you and your husband in terms of what you want to teach your kids about conflict? Because they're watching, right? They, they're they old enough to see something's going on with mommy. This is a little stressful, but you know, how does that make you stop and think about how you parent and teach your kids about conflict in general? 
Oh, Lynn, that's such a great question. And I think I'm, you know, I'm still in the process and still processing it. So I'll just kind of like let you in on what we've had to say to our kids and, you know, just you call what I hope they glean from this, you know, sort of the spiritual lesson. But when this first happened, my husband was out of town the week that the Lariat story broke. And that was so very difficult because I was living in a silo and I didn't have my best friend to process with. And friends rallied around me. I mean, I got more gifts and flowers that week than I think I've ever gotten to my birthday. You know, so <laughs> I, I felt very, very loved and supported, but that it was hard because I kept thinking to myself, like. I don't think I did anything wrong. And I would pray about it. I'm like, I didn't do anything illegal. I didn't break any rules. I didn't, you know, I kept like trying to reconcile what would warrant this sort of a reaction to a very reasonable concern. And it's not reasonable. I mean, spiritual warfare never is reasonable. But I had to explain to my kids, give them some sort of an explanation because I was so deeply broken, crying, um, not, I mean, just really not doing well. I mean, not anything where I needed an intervention, but as you can imagine, like it just um, cut me to the core and my, my kids were watching it. So as best I could explain in nine and seven-year-old terms, I just said, I said publicly, because I don't even know what online is. I just said, you know, like I said publicly where the world could see that I don't think that boys need to be in girls' bathrooms. And even my kids were like, what? That's it? Like, that's so like, duh, you know, like, you know, they, they, they understand now they couldn't want girls in their bathrooms and they, they know at this tender age, they don't, they shouldn't be in the girls' bathrooms either. Um, so I think they at least understood that I was being attacked by Baylor students for reasons that were absurd and they, they grieved for me. And, you know, my older one is very protective. I I joke, he's an Enneagram eight, um, just very protective, like kind of wanted to battle everything. But then, you know, like people started interacting with him, which I I think this is very sweet, but like my son's community group leader at his his church um, is a Baylor student. And and again, this is so very sweet, but he said, we're going to pray for your mom, Christopher, because I know that Baylor has said a lot of mean things about her. And so again, I, you know, no, um, yeah, I mean, that's fine. That, but the now, the now he like has to like sort of address like these eight kids in this small group, know that like Christopher's mom is going through a lot. So this to say they've seen that this is a public ordeal and in the, in the light of like big, big things in life, like they're going to be fine. But I think in their little tender hearts, they've had to have a little bit of a reconciliation with, oh, poor mom, like what, what is Baylor doing to her? And I have tried my best to still foster that love for Baylor. I mean, they may want to go there when they're older and, um, you know, and I don't want them to ever hate anyone or anything except true evil. Like, you know, I, I told my son the other day, I mean, he just was asking theological questions, my seven-year-old. And he was like, is it okay to hate Satan? And I'm like, yes, you can hate Satan and you can hate evil, but really it's not the people we hate. It's the evil that's working in them. And so again, like they're little and these are theological, big sort of like theodicy, you know, suffering. And if God is good, why is there evil kind of questions? Um, but I'm trying even at this this young, impressionable age to sow these roots of like, we don't hate the students. We hate what the sin is doing through them kind right. of thing. And um, I taught a human trafficking class, you know, the free class I was teaching the other night, the night of the championship. I let them go early, you know, to watch the game. But I brought my kids on campus with me in part because that's where the sitter was meeting us. And then she took them actually, you know, to Penland Hall, to the dining hall to eat. And they rode scooters around campus. You know, so I did that in part because it was convenient. But I did that also, Lynn, because I still want them to see the best of the university. And so that's just a micro example of what I want their hearts to do at a macro level for everything, you know, like find the good, sift for what God says is good here, like reject what is evil and accept what is good. And so, you know, micro level, that's what I'm trying to do, but I hope that is the macro lesson and all of this for them. Well, and it sounds like, um, a lot, you know, I, I just interviewed and talked to a lady the other night with uh, that just wrote a book for children um, that talks a lot about that in terms of replacing replacing things in your life that are 
um, maybe a sinful thought or something that the enemy's put in your mind, whether that's, oh, Baylor's bad or whatever in this context. Um, but to replace that with the truth and how you replace, take those things, recognize them for what they are as untruths or um, or sin or something that the enemy's trying to distract you with or pull you down with. And in the context of this book um, is about a little boy who's being told he's a bully. Uh, or being bullied by some kids. And so he starts to believe some of the things that they're saying to him just because mm-hmm. that's what he's around. Right. And so the whole book is talking about taking those seeds that are sown that are negative and, you know, recognizing them as from the enemy, repl- you know, replacing them with God's word or replacing them with the truth of the Lord. I think that's such a huge thing when it comes to your kids um, and a responsibility, obviously, as a parent is um, that's a believer is to teach them, um, you know, those critical thinking skills of is this truth? Is this God's truth? Um, how does that look and affect my life? And if not, then what do I replace it with? Um, I want to kind of shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about um, because this is a college type conversation um, and you're living that college world. And I live in that college world right now with our youngest praise the Lord above. It mm-hmm. will be our last year of 12 years with kids in school in college. <laughs> so we're ready to be out of that. But um, in terms of college life and it, it, you know, you, you spend all these years as a mom preparing your kids to step out into the world um, away from you. It's not like you're ever, you know, completely away from them, but to be out and make those choices on their own, but that you've, you know, fostered a love of God's word. You've fostered that process of thinking, um, of how they make decisions before they go off. So from a professor's perspective, what are some things that you've seen just in your relationship with students that you've, um, you know, discipled through the years or what are some things that maybe specifically moms might think about that have a kid going off to college soon? Because we both know that there's such a liberal agenda in general on college campuses. Um, But what are some things that you might, might speak into a mom that you've seen um, affect college kids maybe that you've worked with? Yeah. You know, so it, it, one kind of disclaimer is like every college kid is different. So I want to share some generalizations and this is like 15 years of working 14 years, I think technically of working with college students and just, and I've, you know, started teaching the millennials and now I'm into Gen Z. So these are just generalizations. And I do think like some of these generalizations even actually, you know, that I'll share have data behind them. Um, but I do want to also do the disclaimer that every kid is different. So no, your kid. That would probably be, you know, advice number one is like, you know, your kid, you know, like God designed you to be their parent and their caretaker and their guardian for a reason. You're going to know them better than anyone. That doesn't mean that they won't hide things from you or that you won't find out things that are surprising, but, um, you know, really and truly like you've been stewarding their hearts from birth. So, you know them. Um, but I would say the, the number one piece of advice, in fact, I just gave this on Twitter the other day, you know, speaking of Twitter, because I'm really not that active. Like I probably log on like <laughs> once a week, you know, and at this point I'm like even thinking about deleting my whole account. But um, but somebody had asked, you know, and it was a, it was a believer and they and they were asking as an ad- college admissions counselor or something like, what advice do you give to college kids? And the thread was pretty long. I mean, several dozen people in. And as I was scanning, I was like, nobody has offered this. And it seems so self-evident within a Christian circle, but advice number one, find a church right away because you need community. Like you cannot do life alone. And that is, that's true if you're an unbeliever, but as a believer, like, you know, that it is written in your heart to live in community, like that, that acts, you know, a 22 kind of passage, like you're meant to live in community and to, to share life amongst one another. And so in that sense, just for the sake of not feeling lonely, hopefully 2020 showed all of us like, we need people. Like we go crazy. Like we are not, and when left to our own devices, it's not healthy. Like we need healthy community. Um, Cause the voices speaking into your child's life are going to be, you know, what sh- it's spiritually 
informs them. So make sure that it, particularly if you're at a, like a state school where they're not getting spiritual formation in the classroom or it's not readily available on campus, like that it's all the more reason to have, make sure that your kids get involved in a community right away, like their freshman year. I will see students come in and flounder for years. And I'm like, guys, it is better to just jump in to any sound church and then figure it out later than it is to keep church hopping. You know, like find a church, jump in, get loved on, love other people. Right. Um, 100% agree. And and with like I said, with all three of mine, I know um, they've all had different experiences in terms of finding a church. They all pretty much found one right away. Um, but I know that sense of community is so strong. And like you said, with with COVID and all of us feeling like we weren't around anybody but our immediate family, which is great. But on day 12, you're like, okay, yeah. get away from me. Um, right. But that community at the college level is in a good, solid community. And like you said, in a biblical um, setting that you've got people that are walking with you that are, um, you know, my middle daughter um, was a part of a community in, in Lubbock. She was a Texas Tech and where my husband and I both went. And um, it was so huge for her, but it took probably till her junior year before she really found somebody. But the difference it made, not only did it give her just from a, a human level, of, a, a level of um, just belonging, but it had other people that were pointing her to Christ. They had a group, a couple that was an older couple um, that you know, mentored this group of college kids that just reached so far. It became, Oh, you need a place to stay. Oh, I have an extra bed. Hey, do you need a a house to rent? You know it, but they were people that you knew and trusted that you knew that their perspective was a godly perspective. Um, And those are still relationships that, you know, now um, helped foster what she ended up doing once she graduated, moved back to Dallas, and now she works for Watermark. Mm. Um, well, they just changed the name. She works for Plano. It's City Bridge now. Um, but so those things have such long-reaching arms that it's not just about, oh, great, I have a place to go to church on Sunday. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're know, you putting yourself in God's presence and to hear the Lord through His Word, but the people and His plan and purpose can be driven out through that. So I'm 100% on board with the community thing, so I agree completely. Yeah. And I think similarly, because I know there are moms listening who are like, well, my kids are a long way from college. Um, you know, cause my, my kids are a good eight to 10 years from college as well. But I think spiritual formation starts very early, you know, find some things like some resources. And I can name a few where you feel like, okay, this spiritually aligns with our values and start sowing truth into your kids. You know, scripture says that truth is written on their hearts. So they are naturally curious about God and evil and the way that the, you know, that the, that the Lord has set up the universe to work. My kids are constantly asking those kinds of, you know, big lofty spiritual questions. And so give them resources that forms truth and solidifies truth early on. Um, because that, again, you know, that the word does not return void and, um, you know, it says raise a child in the way that he should go and they will not depart. So I think like really believing what scripture says about spiritual formation and our little kids so that when they encounter these, um, narratives that seem to negate what God says to be true, then they've got that truth to lean into. Well, I I know I've seen a lot of this that you've posted. You're pretty good about posting different books that you've read or things that have come up. And or do you have some uh, resources of things that you're maybe going through with your boys right now, or something that you think is good? I I kind of feel left out that I missed out on the whole uh, internet phase when my kids were little because, <laughs> because it was the good old fashioned library um, or uh, you know just your just your Bible, which back then they weren't even really children's Bibles are maybe written in a lot of different versions that we have today, but just the resources that are available for fostering that love of the Lord and his word. Um, and just like you said, sowing those seeds in their heart is so important, but is there something that you've kind of been using maybe lately with your boys that you would, and we can put any other resources that you have in the show notes too. 
Okay. Yeah. You know, and so Lynn, I think you've made me remember a very good, important point that probably needs to be said even before I give resources that your kids are watching you and what you exude is what they're going to soak up, you know, so you can give them all the resources. You can send them to the private Christian school, K through 12, you know, higher ed. But if this is not a lifestyle for you, if you're not living it, then they're not going to absorb it. They're going to note at some point the hypocrisy and the discrepancy between what you're professing and what you're not integrating. And so for moms out there, like, even if you like don't have the internet, I don't know how you're listening to this podcast, but you know, if you're complete, you know, anti-technology kind of person, like even just your life can be ministry to your children. So, you know, like I too didn't really grow up with a ton of internet resources. Like I didn't get the internet until late high school. Um, So, you know, similarly, but I would say for as far as resources, I've been a big fan of Jenny Allen's Theology. It's kind of an odd name. I think I like a play on theology, but Theology, and she's got some kid resources. She has a box set called God's Great Story, I believe is the name of it. And it's like a three-part book on the biblical narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So it introduces to kids already this biblical idea of like, hey, God created the earth and there was a fall and that's why there's brokenness and sin and hurt. And um, But God's good news is that he came to redeem and restore and that we can live with him for eternity. So that puts into children's terms. Um, Trilla Newbell has a book out called God's big idea or God's great idea. Um, And we read that at night too. And that's a book actually on diversity um, from a biblical perspective. So I'm not a big fan or advocate. Probably most of your listeners aren't either of like the Ibram Kendi, like anti-racist baby. I I honestly haven't even picked it up, but I do want to cultivate a love for diversity in my children. And so again, some of that's going to come through reading and Trilla Newbell has some good children's resources there, but then also that's going to have to be lived experience. Experience. You know, like I have to be intentional about fostering diversity from a biblical worldview in their real life, not just their academic. So um, those two people are great resources for podcasts for moms, like yours, of course. Don't mom alone. If I don't know if you're familiar with Heather McFadden, but she'll often like post some resources for parents too. So that would be a good place for people to go. That's awesome. And it's funny because even though my kids aren't little anymore, um, a lot of these books that we see come up uh, on Instagram, my best friend and I are constantly going, oh, I just bought this for for future grandkids. Because I'm like, I'm totally reading all of this stuff. So like, even if you're not a mom living with littles, right, you're going to have grandkids in your lap that you can be reading. And so I'm all about that. My poor daughter, um, so yeah, I have to I have to leave her alone a little bit about that. But um, I'm like, come on, y'all been married six years. Um, That's funny. So last, you know, we're going to wrap up here in a second. So I don't want to keep you too long. But I was going to ask you really. Obviously, this has taken a toll on you personally and professionally. But what do you think that this whole um, incident, ordeal, whatever you want to call it, uh, distraction, which is a huge enemy mm-hmm. uh, or use of the enemy is what is something that you really feel like God has shown you in the middle of all this through the controversy and the suffering really that you've been a part of because of this for really lack of a better term, but what's something you feel like God's really shown you to this point? And I'm sure more will be revealed as you, um, you know, get further past it. Yeah. Well, I think for, you know, for Baylor, and we already talked about this, it's, you know, going to be kind of a spiritual and a cultural reckoning for campus that I guess needed to happen. You know, there'd been like a bandaid on the wound and I don't even know. And so like the Lord is going to do what he's going to do through that. And I just pray that, you know, Baylor leadership stewards that well. And I think for me personally, um, I've never felt more loved by my husband who, you know, came to my defense and just was such a great support, Um, you know, 17 years of marriage. And I think that, you know, we were doing great beforehand, but it just was a sweet reminder from the Lord that he really is my best friend and in my corner and um, leads our family well and loves Jesus. And so I just saw um, a manifestation of all those things. I think I knew, but then to watch that walk out, you know, played out, I have never felt so loved by community. You know, my, my, 
intimate community here in Waco, my church, different churches in Waco rallied in my support, wrote letters on my behalf, sent them to, you know, Board of Regent, um, you know, different leaders at other Christian universities. I think where a lot of the parents heard about my situation um, is the Billy Graham article. Is that maybe where they, because that was like a delayed article that came out several yeah, weeks. Yeah, yeah. And different, you know, Christian news outlets rushed to my defense and my support. So, like, I I never needed this kind of a support system before. But when I needed it, you know, Lynn, I mean, church was there for me. Like, I felt loved and supported by the body of Christ. So, I think, again, like, that was just a sweet reminder. Like, no, we, we really do need the body of Christ. Um, I had not ever needed it more than after going through this. But it was there for me when I did. And I'm I'm so thankful for the body of Christ. And I'm so thankful to the Lord for that. So, you know, again, it's kind of was like, I'm still sort of in it and processing it. But my goodness, that is the sweetness. That's the fruit coming out of such, you know, reckless chaos. Um, right. Initial chaos. Well, I would say one thing that kind of came to my mind, too, just when thinking about all this again and going through questions and what we were going to talk about was um, just thinking of in the moment of the controversy, you know, there is the suffering of like, oh, this hurts. I don't want to be here. Make Mm -hmm. it go away. Mm -hmm. And yet um, we had a good friend who just um, did this service for his infant baby that that they lost Mm -hmm. at seven weeks. And I remember sitting in the service. Um, of course, we're all sobbing at just the idea of him, you know, doing and performing or at least speaking at the service. But the one thing he kept focusing on is in the middle of the suffering and feeling like you're attacked by the enemy and and feeling like, um, you know, why me, Lord, in the middle of this, that he just kept going over this is that it made uh, it made him feel like he was with with Christ in the suffering and, and knew what that this was ultimately honoring the Lord through the suffering and that what the suffering was going to be. And he kept going to the verse in second Corinthians where it says, praise be to God, our father and Lord Jesus Christ, the father of compassion and the father of all comfort who comforts us in our troubles so that we may comfort those in in any trouble with Mm. the comfort that we have received ourselves. So that's really the, one of the things I took away from that, that I would even challenge, you know, you or anybody else that's going through something is that, you know, where you've seen the comfort of the Lord given to you and through your community and the people that God's placed in your path, what are you going to do with it? Mm -hmm. You know, how do you, how do you um, handle yourself? And like I said, I, that from an outside perspective that really doesn't know you to watch you walk this with the grace that God has given you with, um, you know, moving through with the support that you've had, um, you know, has been a joy to watch. I mean, unbeknownst to you and, and I hate mm-hmm. that you've had to go through all of this, but I feel like the things that we experience and everybody goes through hard things, maybe not on the large grand Twitter scale that you've had to <laughs> Kind of walk through, but to be able to say that we suffered with Christ in something that we were, um, that he will use for his glory. And then what are we going to do with it in order to help comfort somebody else when they walk through it? Because we can say we've been there. Yeah, um, that's so good. The only other question I was going to ask you was, so like, what are you even talking about future plans yet or what you're kind of, Yeah, I know you've hinted at it a little bit on social media, but I didn't really know if you were ready to say anything. If not, it's totally fine. I'm just curious what you're kind of thinking for the next, what are you going to be doing the next few months? Yeah, you know, so um, I really, I would say, you know, kind of, you know, short answer is I don't quite know. I've had other opportunities presented to me. You know, people have, you know, I've had two people reach out with like, do you want to write a book? Um, not just on the incident, because I don't know that that is like book worthy. It's like a chapter. But, um, you know, just I think that's been some, something stirring in my heart. Um, the seminary that I've partnered with, we've had conversations about what that looked like to be a research um, associate here. Um yeah, you know, so I think that there's other opportunities and I just want to pray about that. Like, I don't want my automatic response to be sure. no. Um, I, there's nothing else in life I've ever wanted to do than just 
teach and love on college kids. So, I mean, I, I feel like I've like arrived, I've made it, this is what I want to do, but I also want to be really sensitive to how the Lord may use me in other areas as well. So I think short answer is I don't quite know yet. And, and it may be that the Lord transitions me onto something else and then brings me back in the, in the future. That could be a possibility as well, but whatever I end up doing, cause I've, I've had like lots of far right political groups reach out. And I, I think for me, it's like a clear no. Um, I don't even politically disagree with most of these. It's just that I'm not sure that's how the Lord wants to use me. Like I want to unapologetically integrate faith in all I do. And that is a sticky road when you are doing politics, you know? Right. Oh, for sure. So, um, yeah. So I think whatever I do next, it will be intentionally overtly faith integrated. So. Okay. Yeah. Well, no, that's a good answer because I wasn't sure really where you were going with all that, but you know, I I agree. Praying about it and knowing exactly, you know, that you're 100 percent sure on what your next steps are, and I'll just wait and see what you have to post on social media at some point <laughs> when you get ready to share what you're going to be doing. But I just wanted to say thank you, Dr. Crenshaw, so much for being on. I have loved chatting with you and getting to know you on a different level because I know the. The, like you said, the social media part that you've played and in terms of the podcast that you've been on, and maybe we were able to take it to a different level. And I didn't want to really, you know, give any more airtime necessarily to this, you know, article or the people that were involved in all of it, but more really what God has done in the middle of your trial, um, how you've been able to show uh, a mom with a biblical worldview and how God has provided in the middle of that conflict. Um and just be able to kind of share your heart behind what's happened and, and how God's walked you through it and how he's been faithful um, in the middle of it. Um, so I'll be excited to see how, how things progress for you in the next few months. Well, thank you, Lynn. And thank you so much for having me. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. It was so fun. Guys, we'll make sure and tag everything um, in the show notes of things that we've talked about today. But thank you so much for listening. Until next time, happy Wednesday. Hey, y'all, I can't thank you enough for listening and want you to know that you have all been prayed for, for real. If you liked what you heard or it touched your heart in any way, I would so love for you to leave a great review on iTunes. But more than that, just share this with other moms that you know that might get something out of it. You can find more information about each of the episodes in the show notes, as well as our links to Instagram and the website at drivethroughmoms.org. Thank you for listening. And until next time, happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday.